The soundscape, the sonic environment is incredibly alive. If you're able to echolocate, you just increase that liveliness to many orders of magnitude because now every sound that's being made, whether it's, I mean, all these birds chirping out here, planes flying overhead, all of that is reflecting off of every surface that's around me right now. And so it gets it gets magnified into not just a soundscape, it gets magnified into a scene. He lost both eyes to cancer when he was just 13 months old. But Daniel the toddler wasn't terribly fond of limits. A year or so after losing his vision, he was wriggling out of his bedroom window, across the lawn, over chain-link fences, through multiple neighbors' yards, and out into the wide, wide world, not unlike the pokey little puppy. As he explored that wide, wide world very precociously, Daniel Kish began to develop the skill of echolocating. A chain-link fence is perfect for a toddler, perfect for hands and feet to just fit right into the to the wires. I mean, they're the easiest thing in the world to climb. And it wasn't terribly tall. I guess in those days, people pretty much knew, you know, to whom the blind kid belonged. So they called the police and had me return home. And yes, I was scolded and a lock was put on my door. But, you know, I, I didn't escape out the door. I escaped out the window. Daniel Kish is a leading expert on human echolocation, and therein lies the reason for a nickname he's acquired, The Real Batman. There's a nonprofit charity he's founded, World Access for the Blind, and he's taught echolocation and other life skills to hundreds of blind children around the world. Given his out-the-window, day-or-night escapades as a toddler, it's hardly surprising to learn that he does not mentor his students to be passive or compliant. I'm Marcus Smith. In the next two episodes of Constant Wonder, we're going to be imagining Daniel Kish's perspective on the things around him. How does he experience stuff? He's already used the term soundscape, those ever-present enveloping sounds or vibrations that he relies on for navigation. 20 seconds into this episode, he echolocated with a click, a fairly inconspicuous click, unless you had been told what to listen for. Later on, you'll hear him demonstrating these signals and his range from soft to loud, and we'll get to hear him explain why they need to vary in strength. He propels sounds out into the surrounding soundscape. Those sounds bounce back off reflective surfaces, which have varying degrees of reflectivity, and thus he's able to navigate his way around and sense what's going on. Kish has been imparting this technique to students throughout the world for over 25 years. I think of the environment as being basically a collection of information and experiences. So we can query the environment for information, for experiences. You know, when a sighted person looks at the environment, there it's almost you could think of it kind of like reading, reading a book, say. So you're reading a book, you're gathering information from the environment visually. An echolocator actually queries the environment, actually sends out signals, actually sends out signals that you can think of as questions. Where are you and what are you? Where are you and what are you? Where are you and what are you? So the, the quality of the question helps to determine the quality of the answer. And so that's why I think that the signal characteristics are important. How you deliver that signal, the strategies you use to deliver that signal, you know, for, I mean, simple things, like if I'm clicking down at the ground, 
then I'm less likely to detect what's above me. And if I'm clicking to the right, I'm less likely to detect effectively what's to the left of me. So one thing that proficient echolocators will do, must do, is to scan. We scan with our heads in much the same way that a sighted person moves their eyes, scans with their eyes. This whole trick of scanning with the ears while clicking to query the environment, you know, it almost sounds like a superpower, something from X-Men. But Kish says it's just how the world works. And if you or I could learn to use our ears to their full capacity, well, then our environment would register with us in a whole new way. Every environment has its own acoustic signature. My standing here in a a 10 by 10 room versus my stepping out here into a much larger living space that has a lot more reverb to it versus my stepping outside. And the minute I step outside, all reverb just disappears. And that's not subtle. So we all know that when we walk into a, you know, a shopping mall, for example, that there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of chaos and people moving around, and a lot of noise and music and things like that. But you can up the ante. You could walk through a construction zone. You could walk through a, a rock concert. You could walk through a, a busy bar. You could walk on the tarmac. So you can always get louder and louder and louder and more and more congested. Echolocation kind of puts the continuity back into the acoustic environment. So a proficient echolocator is not only just hearing the sounds being made by others or the sounds being produced by events. We're hearing all of the sounds that are reflected by those events. Every mechanical thing that happens in the atmosphere produces a sound. And then every surface that exists in an environment reflects all of those sounds. So for an echolocator, you you quickly reach a much greater intricacy, if you will, or, or a much greater succession of layers to the soundscape. And so how well those surfaces reflect sounds depend in part on the quality of the sounds and the quality of the environment that you're in. So that's one of the reasons why I advocate the use of producing your own signal. So in my case, it's a tongue click. It's fairly famous. And it's a, it, that click is a, a signal that my brain has tuned itself to, and it creates the exact quality that I need under my control to produce the best image I can produce regardless, well, to some degree regardless, of the environment, regardless of the ambiance around me. And there are a lot of strategies behind those signals. So if the ambiance around me is relatively quiet, then only a relatively low intensity or amplitude signal is necessary. Whereas if the environment is much louder, a much stronger signal is necessary. If the environment is moving quickly, in other words, you have a lot of moving parts, then a signal may need to be produced more frequently. Whereas if an environment is familiar to the user or an environment is relatively less complicated, then fewer utterances of the signal are needed. An echolocator forms metal pictures, pictures painted in sound, You know, so many of our verbal expressions are visual, even the simple notion of a mental picture. 
Well, Kish checks out the surfaces around him. He takes the sonic measure of what's out there, and apparently something takes shape in his mind. Is this technique of his own devising? Well, I had to ask him how much of this is new and how much of it is his own innovation. Most blind people will echolocate to a degree. What we've often heard in the past, you know, what's so special about this? I used to echolocate or I teach echolocation or whatever, and which is one of the reasons we coined the term flash sonar was to differentiate our <laughs> brand, if you will, of echolocation from more traditional concepts of echolocation, which I would consider to be much more rudimentary. So, so most blind people who use echolocation, either consciously or unconsciously, are using it in a, in a much more rudimentary way. So, so something that distinguishes a proficient echolocator from someone who's less proficient is basically just the amount of information you're able to get the amount of detail you're able to get, at what distance you're able to get it. So a proficient echolocator is going to be able to resolve much more detail from a much greater distance, much more quickly, and with much less fatigue. I'm trying to get into the head of one of the foremost teachers and proponents of these techniques. It's an early childhood that he starts emitting sounds and clicks intuitively. They help him get around, Many other blind children have no doubt stumbled onto these tricks as well. It's not like Daniel Kish is a Gutenberg or an Edison presenting some entirely new gizmo to the world. But in a moment, you'll hear how he has expanded the repertoire to include something he calls flash sonar. It's about getting even more detail into that mental picture, more nuance, better resolution. Echolocation by humans, not by bats or whales, but by humans. It's got me thinking now of the thrilling, improbable tale, Thunderdog, by Michael Hingson. On 9-11, Hingson and his guide dog, Roselle, were on the 78th floor of the North Tower of the World Trade Center. The first plane struck. Roselle and Hingson navigated their way down the stairs and led roughly 30 people to safety. Relevant to our purposes here, Hingson is also a very proficient echolocator. And the cane he uses, I've just learned this, by the way, the cane fits right in with his echolocation strategy, not just for probing things, but tapping, you know, to generate those sounds that reveal the surroundings. When Hingson enters a building for the first time, he taps through it to create a mental map. And even in a parking lot, he says he can navigate through without ever touching or tapping a car. Roselle in all of this is a teammate with him. Now, I've mentioned Michael Hingson and his book Thunderdog just to point to one specific example that tells me Daniel Kish is not the wholesale inventor of echolocating, nor would he ever claim to be. And frankly, who knows who that first experimenter in this field may have been. What Daniel Kish has brought to the field is, well, for one thing, flash sonar, but also heightened levels of public awareness and appreciation the number of people he has helped achieve greater confidence as they have finessed their own skills, it's just inspiring. So now this thing he calls flash sonar. How does Daniel Kish differentiate it from echolocating? Flash sonar is a brand of active echolocation. So echolocation can be divided into active versus passive. Uh, passive sonar versus passive echolocation. So like, you know, the, the, the idea came up in submarines where if you had an active sonar, you could be heard. Your signal could be heard. It could be detected. It could be dangerous. So uh, sometimes you turn off that active sonar 
and you go passive, meaning that you're just using the ocean environment to hear what's around you. Why don't uh, submarines always go passive? Well, because it's harder. You, you simply cannot do as well. You cannot resolve as detailed an image from as far away just by using the passive environment. So producing an active signal intensifies and clarifies the image and expands the sphere of awareness. So we call it flash sonar because of the characteristics of the signal. It's a, it's a very quickly pulsed signal that the user has control over. And many students describe it, especially those who've had experience with vision in, in their past, describe it as a flash, like a flash of a camera. So is this intermittent clicking? It's intermittent clicking, yeah. yeah. How, how much time elapses between clicks? So that, that depends. That's a, that's a strategy thing. So uh, the more familiar you are with the space, or the simpler the space, or the quieter the space, the less uh, volume you need in the click. So it might be something like that. It doesn't take much. Uh, and it might not be very frequent. Um, I probably have clicked almost hardly at all this whole time as I've been walking around my property because it's pretty quiet, because I know every inch of it. Yeah, I mean, it's not that hard. So, uh, But if this were someone else's property and I were doing this interview, well, first of all, I'd probably be out here with my cane, which I'm not right now because I don't need to be. But secondly, I probably would be clicking more frequently because I would be finding my way around as I delivered the interview. I would need to hear the surfaces around me. I would need to hear where they are. I would need to hear where I'm going. <laughs> I would need to, you know, to, to kind of memorize the space using echolocation, whereas I've lived here for 21 years. I've already done all that. What is a power click, and when do you use a power click? You can use a power click. I'm going to go out into the front yard here. You can use a power click to detect things that are far away or to cut through a very noisy environment. So a click like that, I mean, we're talking quite possibly 100 decibels, maybe 110 decibels can wipe out a microphone like this. So a condenser microphone is just going to swallow that up and compress it to almost nothing. But a click like that could travel, you know, 50 meters in, in a direction to detect things that are far away. And I have students who have much better power clicks than mine. But it can also cut through noise. So if I'm in a noisy environment, like, a, I don't know, a noisy train station or maybe a construction zone or just a metropolitan area with a lot of traffic, I can, I can extract an image from noisy circumstances just by clicking quite loudly. And because the environments are so loud, the volume or amplitude of the click doesn't necessarily draw attention to itself because you're in a loud situation anyway. So it's not the sort of thing that most people around you tend to register. Now, the generation of a click, is it always done with a mouth? It can be done by hand. Um, it can be done with finger snaps. I don't finger snap as well as I click. And I'm rubbish snapping with my left hand and I use my cane on my right. So um, some people use handheld clickers. So I think I have one here somewhere. Some people use, yeah, so it might look like these little castanets here. So you might put that on the handle of your cane 
Or if you're, you know, a kid and you like to ride your bicycle, you might put this on the handlebar of your bicycle. This works nearly as well and in some ways better than a tongue click. I have a lot of students, especially younger students or students who have hearing impairments using these handheld clickers. You heard right. It's not just the sighted population that enjoys riding bicycles, but we'll get to that a little bit later. While speaking with Kish, I found myself listening, which is what I do for a job, actually, but listening, listening far more attentively than I typically do. He must have had a high-quality microphone on his end because, as maybe you've already detected, he's been in and out of his house. And relying on the soundscape alone, I pretty much could tell whether he was in or out. I hope you caught this, too. It's not just birds tweeting away when he moves outside. And I'm not talking about stereophonic sound, either, that separates what's on the left from what's on the right. I'm talking about the array of different textures and the hard or soft reflections that I've been able to hear. All of this reveals spaces that can be differentiated. Now, you might think that somebody who lives by differentiating sound textures would feel adrift when caught in perfect silence. You know how sighted people most often find total darkness, well, unsettling. Kish has a relationship with silence that's possibly going to surprise you. Have you ever stepped into an echoless room? Not just a quiet room, but an actual anechoic chamber. Sometimes a science museum will have one of these, equipped with surfaces. They're intended to absorb, to suck up sound without letting it bounce back. Well, I say intended because when your echolocation is as keen as Kish's, well, you're never completely fooled. I find anechoic chambers to be extraordinarily relaxing, and I wish I had one of my own to sleep in. Uh, some people ask, what is my favorite sound? And I, I like to say that it's silence, because I'm processing multiple, multiple, multiple layers of, of and nuances of sound every day all the time. And I dare say I don't miss much, so all of that gets processed, and then just I have to decompress from time to time from all of that. I've been in a couple of anechoic chambers, and what I would say, generally speaking, is that to me, now I'm, I'm a relatively proficient echolocator, so it's a little hard. My skills are relatively robust, and one of the things that differentiates someone who's highly proficient from someone who's less proficient or less experienced is the robustness of the skill. How difficult is it to hoodwink or subvert the, the integrity of the skill? Uh, when I click in an anechoic chamber, it doesn't sound wallless. I can hear, I can hear surfaces. I can hear foam. I mean, obviously, the point of an anechoic chamber is to make any surfaces in the room stand out. So if there's furniture in the room and such, that stands out much more in a much more pronounced way. But if you remove all surfaces, then what it kind of sounds like is it sounds like I'm surrounded by a wire fence in an endless field is kind of what it sounds like. So there is an impression of surrounding walls. The foam is detectable. You know, bats are not going to run into these foam baffles, and neither would I. But yes, it is highly, highly, highly absorbent, and it does give the illusion of being in infinite space surrounded by a kind of transparent bubble. I mean, I can hear the foam. No matter how much baffling you're going to put, you're putting that baffling against something hard. Eventually, you're going to hit a concrete shell. So that foam 
has to be transparent to a degree for it not to be heard, right? But then behind it's going to be some kind of something, some kind of surface. So you can't really have it both ways. You can't have foam that's so transparent that it can't be heard and yet uh, transparent enough that it hides the surface behind it. So, Daniel, now I'm kind of wanting you to take us to a specific soundscape of your choosing, someplace you like. doesn't have to be a spectacular place, you know, Yosemite, Lincoln Memorial, Coney Island. <laughs> you pick. I like castles. Castles are highly textured. And while I, I'm not able to discern any particular piece of or, ornamentation, collectively I can tell that there is ornamentation, and so castles is a very live a very alive reflection. Uh, even certain kinds of architecture where you have a lot of ornamentation on the architecture, you have a lot of buttresses, or you have a lot of, I don't know, balconies, things like that that create a live surface. I mean, that's not subtle. There's a pretty substantial distinction between what I would call live surfaces that really sing back to you with richness, which, which conveys a sense of elegance, versus, you know, I don't know, uh, uh, architecture that's more utilitarian and more, you know, clean and more modern. Also, domes are, are pretty special. So I've been in tropical gardens, for example, uh, where they'll have these dome structures over these gardens. And when you find the apex of the dome, your every sound that you make and every sound that's being made in that dome is highly, highly resonant. It's a very special experience. It's a it's kind of a special surround sound experience when you're able to find that acoustic focus. If you're able to echolocate, you just you just increase that order of liveliness to many to many orders of magnitude because because now every sound that's being made, whether it's I mean all these birds chirping out here, planes flying overhead, all of that is reflecting off of every surface that's around me right now. And so it gets it gets magnified into not just a soundscape, it gets magnified into a scene. Well, maybe I should invite you now to magnify a scene for us, a specific castle, maybe, I don't know, a couple of examples that you remember, something along the lines of favorite soundscapes from your memory of visiting castles. Uh, there was a castle in Chemnitz. There's also a school for the blind there that's over 100 years old that has very ornate architecture. And what I remember of it is that when I was in the courtyard and I clicked, I got this whole cascade, this whole kind of domino effect of, of echo response. And what that suggests is that there's layer upon layer upon layer of ornamentation that, that, moves, along the, um, that moves along the surface of the castle. It does create an image. It doesn't create the kind of image that I could exactly sculpt. I mean, I've done I've done the the demonstration where I walk into a scene that I'm not familiar with and I sketch that scene. I can sketch that scene, but I I'm able to sketch you know elements of a scene in terms of navigating through them. I I can't really look up at a castle and start sketching the ornamentation or architecture of the castle. But certainly, as I move through the castle and through the environment or around the castle, there's one in. You know, there's one in France, and I do not remember the name of the chateau, but those who know chateaus would know this one. It's the one that's surrounded by water. A lot of them are surrounded by water, but this one had water running through the castle. So you could actually canoe through the castle using the waterways. 
And I, I was hoping one day, I never did this, but I was hoping to actually do a workshop with blind people from around France and all get into these canoes and learn to echolocate our way around the castle and through the buttresses uh, while, while rowing these boats, basically using it to navigate the boats. The Chateau de Chenonceau spans the River Cher. It has several stonework arches. You may have seen this. It's in France's famous Loire Valley. I, myself, I've only seen photos, but gorgeous photos of this beloved tourist spot. And yet those photos afford me nothing in the way of a soundscape. Virtual tours on YouTube, they sometimes are underscored with lush romantic music. That obliterates whatever sounds were there naturally. Maybe somebody has recorded the actual lapping of water, the narrowing of the sound picture when you're seated in a canoe and floating underneath that watery arcade. Eventually, some YouTuber will post those pure, unadulterated canoe sounds without any string quartet backup. But for now, enjoy this generic sample of lapping water sounds. Well, now, if Daniel Kish can canoe on a river, what's to keep him from riding a bicycle? I found this to be nearly beyond belief, and Kish conceded as much in his laugh when I asked him about his biking. I think you have to be reasonably cautious. I mean, you have to know what you're doing. You have to be able to get enough information from around you to be able to navigate and not run into stuff. It's not for everyone. I mean, even I pick and choose my environments with some care. Yeah, well, echolocation, you can't detect drop-offs for one thing. So if you're riding in a situation where there could possibly be a drop-off, that's a bad idea. But echolocation, you know, it has its it has its challenges with regard to resolution. So I mean, look, navigation is a complex process and it's rarely done with just echolocation. It's usually done with a combination of skill sets bicycling tends to isolate you to almost only echolocation. I mean, there's what's going on beneath your bike wheels and things like that. That's important. And there's memory and mapping and also things like that, which are important. But you don't have your cane in front of you. If you're bicycling alone and you're not on a tandem, then you don't necessarily have people around you telling you what to do or where to go. So you just need to know what you're doing if you're, if you're, <laughs> if you're bicycling and you're echolocating. Yeah, you'd probably want to be pretty careful trying that one out. You probably shouldn't pick just any old street either. As long as I'm talking about streets, they are shared spaces, a shared environment, and they can get not just busy but noisy. I asked Daniel Kish about his take on noise pollution generally, wondering how it affects the blind. This was actually the only time in our conversation when he expressed any kind of frustration. Well, to get a picture of what noise pollution must be like for those without sight, just imagine a nighttime scene in our world in an urban place. Uh, everything awash in bright lights, car headlights harsher, brighter, LED billboards, those have become very intrusive. You get to feel weary by the time you've just driven a few blocks across town. Transfer now that oppressive feeling of modern driving at night to what sound navigation is like for the blind with all the noise pollution in our world. I told Daniel Kish, I get frustrated just thinking about it. I do too. 
I do too. I'm losing patience with it. It's becoming harder and harder. I grew up in a rural environment. In fact, I live in a rural environment. You can look around this. It's pretty rural, actually. It's a pocket of ruralness in urban Long Beach. You know, I'll say a couple of things about that. It's a mixed bag. In many ways, the world is more friendly to blind people than it used to be. And in many ways, it's less friendly to blind people than it, it used to be. So there's always a balance that has to be struck there. One of the ways it's becoming less friendly is that it is becoming louder. Street crossings in particular are becoming more and more complex. Traffic patterns are becoming more and more complex, less easy to grasp. Environmental spaces are becoming more complex, more layered, more visually marked up, especially in these days of the pandemic, relying a lot more on public signage and information boards and things like that. So in many respects, the environment has become less and less friendly to blind individuals, which basically means that blind individuals need to develop more comprehensive, effective strategies in order to continue moving forward, which is one of the things that I'm ever in the process of doing. So I've been blind for 55 years. I've been teaching for 25 years. And there isn't a year that goes by that I don't ask myself, what can we do better? What can we adjust? What can we amend? What can we modify? What can we do better to, to address an environment that's becoming more and more complex? All of this is really about freedom. It's really about self-determination, freedom of choice, personal agency. It's not really about the echolocation per se. That's just sort of a tool. That's like an ingredient in the pie. It's a good ingredient. It makes a great pie, but it's just one ingredient in that pie. So for me, when I go into a situation to work with a student, it's all about how to help this student achieve greater self-determination and freedom and personal agency in their own lives. Daniel Kish heard there. As an infant, he lost both eyes to cancer, but once he was a toddler, he refused to be held back. The all-grown-up version of Daniel Kish lives and teaches others to live boldly, with, in, through, in spite of, or maybe because of their blindness. I'm Marcus Smith, and this is Constant Wonder. The story that I told you about this young boy, it's, it's essentially variations on that same theme over and over and over and over and over and over again. Someone essentially striving to find and claim their freedom of personal choice, their freedom of personal dignity, their direction through life. It's, it's not up to other people to chart that direction. It's not up to other people to take responsibility for our lives in the long term. It's for us to do that, and it's for blind people to really step up to the plate and, and learn to do that. In our last episode, we spoke with Kish about his echolocation techniques, doing our best to learn what a soundscape is like to his ears. He described for us what it's like going solo on a bike, climbing a tree, and we heard how he sizes up all kinds of built environments, interior and exterior spaces, a castle here, a domed pavilion there, his own yard or living room. And without rehearsing it all again, he optimizes data coming at him constantly as sound waves reflected off surfaces. And with a little strategic noise making of his own, he elicits even more useful data from those surfaces. We're going to turn now to Kish's fundamental premises for living, which are anything but superficial. 
We'll talk to him about one of his students, and we'll talk about why he thinks blind kids should climb trees and should use sharp knives and hot stoves. I had to ask him if he actually had to learn to be this audacious. No, I think it was always that way. In fact, if anything, I, I had to tone it down. I think I, I probably popped out of the womb that way and then discovered, you know, I mean, there, there is reason for caution and there is reason to be more sensible. And there is reason to cast your net a little further and a little wider for more input about the world. So I would say that I was one who had to kind of learn to dial it back. He has every right to say that for himself, but I'm a sighted individual, so I would think more than just twice before ever asking Daniel Kish to dial anything back. I'm pretty sure I move through the world with greater trepidation than does he. Later this hour, we're going to visit with another man living boldly with blindness, a fellow who opts out of active echolocation, but, as you're going to hear, somebody who's fearless in a way that any of us might want to emulate. Let's first hear Daniel Kish, who I remind you is founder of World Access for the Blind. We're going to hear about his coaching of a 15-year-old in the UK last summer. Unlike Kish at that same age, this was a young man who needed to learn to be a little bit more assertive. This was a kid who was and is extremely smart, very, very, very talented, very good writer, very eloquent, and also very protected. So he was just kind of assumed that he shouldn't be, you know, rough and tumble. And he never really felt like one of the guys. And he never really felt confident to, to rough and tumble. And so a blind kid like that hears all the fun that all the other kids are having and is just kind of scratching their heads thinking, you know, why am I not able to participate? Why am I not able to have those kinds of experiences? He spent many, many years in what they call a holiday club, I think they call it, where if your parents work, you know, you go there after school and you spend time there, or if school is out, you go there every day. And from about the age of four to about the age of 14, he had nothing to do. <laughs> he, he, he wasn't playing games with the other kids. He basically had nothing to do. He said 80% of the time he was there, he just wasn't interacting with other kids. So that's heartbreaking to me. And I spent a lot of time working with him for him, it was a matter of feeling more confident, of getting out and exploring, of coming to the realization that he had the capacity to, to take ownership of his environment, that he had the capacity to access people around him with more self-initiative. Rather than not wanting to bother people, he could get information from people. He could get information from his environment by having the conversation with the environment that we talked about earlier he could use technology and he could take control over the adaptations he needed to be able to do stuff he wanted to do. So uh, at the end of the day, you know, he does that. He goes back in school. At first, he encounters resistance because people there aren't comfortable with him taking this initiative because there's a lot of social opposition to blind people taking initiative. And so he had to fight that. He had to fight that. And he'd been conditioned not to fight that. He'd been conditioned to be a, a good little blind boy but he decided to take that on and he decided to go out there and take initiative to make his own friends because there was a discouragement of the blind kids interacting with the sighted kids over fear of what might happen. <laughs> like what? Well, you know, like, uh, I don't know, like bullying or like getting lost and, you know, the kids running away and leaving you or who knows? I don't, I don't really know because I didn't have that problem. But there seems to be an inherent angst 
uh, about blind kids interacting with the sighted kids, unless the activity is highly structured and highly supervised. You do not see blind kids hitting the neighborhood and hanging out. That is a rare thing. And if it's happening, uh, you know, a lot of people are wondering, is this a good idea? But, you know, he decided to take that on and do more of that. So it was really, really exciting. I mean, he just had a really, really exciting time for his family. It was exciting. Even going into the kitchen and making food. I mean, they'd kept him out of the kitchen because they figured, well, what if he burns himself or what if he cuts himself or whatever? And even in when he was taking cooking in school, okay, so he signed up to take cooking in school. A lot of kids signed up to take cooking in school, but they wouldn't let him actually do anything. They wouldn't let him cut things. They certainly wouldn't let him near anything hot. So what is he supposed to learn? What is the point? Well, a protective, cautious person might say that the point is to prevent someone from getting cut by a knife or burned by a stove somebody they think of as particularly vulnerable for whatever reason. But that vulnerability is in most instances assumed rather than based on any real empirical evidence. Do you suppose what we're hearing right now is a healthier perspective on risk management? I mean, what should we really think? I remember when he first went to school and he was really, he he came up against a barrier of people kind of, you know, chiding him for clicking and chiding him for wanting to go off, do things on his own and chiding him for the way I taught him how to use his cane and things like that, right? He was no longer being the good little blind boy that they had expected him to be. And so he was encountering this sort of negative atmosphere around that and had to do some soul searching about how he wanted to respond to this because he's naturally, he is naturally He's a kind of a people pleaser. He's just, that's kind of the ki- kind of kid he, he, I wasn't like that. I was, I was a pain in the ass. And, and he was, he's a people pleaser. He's very charming. He's very delightful. Everyone loves him. So for him to kind of push against the rules, the expectations, that wasn't expected. And he had to decide who he was going to be in this situation. Something I learned about Daniel Kish in our last Constant Wonder episode is that he sometimes rides a bike. I guess what I really learned is that blind people can ride bikes, and now I'm hearing that maybe I shouldn't be surprised because of certain false assumptions that I harbor, and frankly, which many of us harbor. But it's also fair to ask if using a sharp knife in the kitchen and riding a bicycle on a public road don't bring very different levels of risk biking blind, I still don't take that very lightly. How many times can you up the ante? Well, let's talk deep water and swimming, shall we? Kish survived a scary incident when he was young, and he told me he was scared of deep water for years after that. Imagine a five-year-old being scared of deep water. I learned to be a good swimmer. I learned to be a really good swimmer, but I made a mistake and I fell into a pool once. I might have been about five managed, you know, I swam to the surface, I swam to the side, whatever. But I was afraid of deep water for about two decades after that. So I dealt with it. I mean, I took myself in hand and dealt with it. But there is that. There was another boy, uh, a two-year-old I'm working with, and they took him swimming lessons. And and their final lesson is to drop the kid, you know, into the pool fully clothed, shoes, sweatshirt, winter clothing and everything. (laughs) That sounds absolutely horrifying. (laughs) Yes, it does. 
<laughs> yeah. Um, okay. I, I take you to be a fairly intrepid uh, person in your temperament, and that's probably innate. And you've mentioned climbing over chain link fences at two and a half years of age. Trees were no obstacle for you, really. Yeah, I still love tree climbing. It depends on what I have access to climbing. But, I mean, I love a good tree, and the taller the better. This one's actually kind of nice. This is a big jacaranda tree. It's a bit scruffy right now. But it's nice and big and tall. Yeah, so this is a this is a pretty serious tree. This one, I don't mind climbing, but it's a bit ragged, so it's it's hard on the skin to climb, and that makes it a little less fun. My favorite trees to climb are birch trees. They're nice and smooth, lots of branches. Those are like, you know, kind of like candy. They're like kinesthetic candy. Eucalyptus trees are much harder. I love climbing them because they're sturdy, uh, but they're much more challenging. It's ironic, actually. It's, it, 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 there are lots and lots of comprehension gaps between sightedness and blindness because the two are pretty much mutually exclusive. They're opposed. They're almost like, you know, magnetic polar opposites. And it's very, very difficult for someone who's been blind all their life to understand vision and extraordinarily hard for someone who's been sighted all their life to understand blindness. And darkness is not the same as blindness. The irony there is... If I were to say that sighted children are almost like innately innately predisposed to do, it'd be like running after a ball, like a puppy. Kids tend to be ball happy. If it's moving, they want to run after it. They want to catch it. They want to throw it. They want to do all kinds of things to it. And it has to do with the neurology, really. Peripheral vision, movement vision develops ahead of central vision. And so kids tend to be highly, highly motivated by things that move, which is one of the reasons they move, because their perspective moves when they move, and that, and they see better. They, they literally perceive their environment better with movement, right? So the younger you are, the more that's true. With blind kids, it doesn't work exactly that way. Blind kids tend to gravitate towards stability. They tend to gravitate towards security. Now, it may be ironic from a sighted person's perspective, but Climbing satisfies that for blind kids because you have three points of contact, you have up and down, you're not dealing with open space, you're not dealing with the unknowns of where am I and am I going to run into something and, you know, is something going to hit, you know, run into me or whatever. You have control over your body in that physical space and you can get to know it relatively easily. It becomes familiar relatively quickly. You always know which way is up. You always know which way is down. You always know which way is sideways. And you're always in full contact with the surface. So it's highly kinesthetic. It's highly embodied. And I would say that tr- climbing is as innate to blind kids as <laughs> running after a ball is innate to sighted kids. And yet we encourage sighted kids to run after balls, but we discourage blind kids from climbing. Okay, give me some actual nuts and bolts here. How do you actually proceed? What are steps one, two, three, four, when you say to yourself, hey, I want to climb today? I mean, start me out. The, the physical process of climbing a tree is less about echolocation and more about, um, it's, more, it's more kinesthetic. It's more about feeling your way and finding your way, you know, tactily, kinesthetically. Um, however, 
uh, if you don't have someone around to help you find a tree, then you have to echolocate to find a tree. You have to find the tree somehow. So you, you know, so you might be echolocating to find the tree. It's also very interesting. <clears throat> I always made a little game of how high do I have to be before I can't detect the ground anymore. So I was always clicking back down to the ground to hear how far the ground was away and, you know, basically using that to gauge my height and things. The other thing that's quite engaging from an echolocator's perspective, but also just uh, the soundscape, is the the, the soundscape, what the soundscape is, the characteristics that a soundscape takes on when you're 30, 40, 50, 60, 80 feet above it, and you have nothing around you but sky, and the world is kind of laid out beneath you like a tapestry, and all the things you can hear spread out for blocks and blocks, maybe miles and miles, depending on where, where it is that you are. And then, of course, if you're an echolocator, you click around, you hear nothing, which is pretty interesting, because you almost always hear something. So to hear nothing is interesting. To hear birds actually flying underneath you or flying around you at your, at your level is also really interesting. For me, it was a privilege, an honor, to hang out with Daniel Kish for a bit, chat with him, to sound him out as he was perambulating his house, yard, neighborhood. We were actually connected by video throughout that conversation, so we got to see his surroundings as he moved around. We got to see some of his favorite trees. Apart from the visual impressions, we were wanting to capture some elements of his soundscapes. But the scope of this story is is more than just the nuts and bolts of how do you do echolocation as a technique. One of the things we like to go after here on Constant Wonder is a sort of thing that eludes measurement in any kind of concrete or physical way. It could have to do with the wonders of art or music or architecture. We could talk about human behavior and empathy or maybe the immune system or all that mind-blowing stuff. But I'm talking about the indomitable spirit that some people have. We try to capture that too. And to me, Daniel Kish manifests that. The only complaint I could draw out of him was that problem of noise pollution. And even then, he saw the situation as an evolving challenge, not really as an excuse of any kind. Well, hanging out with Kish led us to check in with another bold spirit, a longtime Constant Wonder listener in Toronto. It's a fellow we've corresponded with occasionally as he follows along with our podcasts. We thought his would be the perfect voice to flesh out this episode on the topic of living boldly with blindness. Robert Just, 78 years old, he's retired now, spent his working years transcribing medical reports at a local hospital. Here's how Robert Just remembers his career. Sometimes I'd arrive at the office about 8 o'clock or so in the morning, and on a fine day, I was in close proximity so I could walk to work and back. And I enjoyed doing that. Often, I would get to work ahead of everybody else. And if I was having a really good day, which most of the time happened, I could have about three or four summaries all printed out and ready to go before anybody else arrived. And it wasn't because I was typing at breakneck speed. Now, my supervisor used to always caution me, don't try to type fast. We want accurate work. I mean, we've got to get a a pretty good quantity of work out every day, but it's got to be accurate. That's the main thing. Another thing that often happened, Marcus, was that 
there'd be a rush that would come in. Let's say a patient was being transferred by ambulance somewhere out of town and they needed the file to go with the patient. Nine times out of ten, I was the one that got the call. When my supervisor scrutinized my work, she'd put a little inscription on the inside of the file saying, this file was typed and transcribed by a blind dictatypist. And I, I would always sign my initials RWJ at the end of each uh, summary or operative note that I uh, typed up. Well, this one day, the certain doctor came in and said, could I speak to your blind typist, please? And the supervisor said, yes, he's sitting right over here. And of course, we, were, we weren't allowed to start to work, as I say, at that time until it was time to start work. So he shook hands with me and he complimented me on my work. And of course I thanked him. And that really gave me the inspiration to buckle down and really do a good, accurate job. Robert Just is older than Daniel Kish and you could say a little bit more conventional in his manner of getting from place to place. You won't find him echolocating, that is. But he's fiercely committed to getting out and about. And part of his MO includes occasional reliance on a passerby. He's very willing to take help at busy intersections where he says he is loath to trust those chirping lights. Well, on some street corners, they have these uh, audio devices like the, the chirp and the cuckoo and all this sort of thing in really wide intersections. But even there, I really don't feel comfortable crossing a wide intersection on my own, even with those audio signals, because you never know who's going to dart out from another direction. When's the last time you had a chance to practice the social skill of assisting a blind person in this sort of a situation? I mean, have you ever thought about what would be most appreciated? Probably depends entirely on the recipient. But here's how Robert Jess thinks about it. Well, most people are going to be gracious enough and say, excuse me, may I assist you? And then, you know, you will accept if you feel that you need the assistance. And there's a right and a wrong way to do it. Let me give you an example of something that is a no-no. It does happen around here from time to time. They see you standing on a, on a corner or something like that. They reach out and grab your cane and lift it up in the air. That is not done. I just uh, pull it back and say, that is not the way you do it. And uh, someone get, get kind of uh, huffy and say, well, I was just trying to help. You know, okay, the proper thing to do is if a person carries the cane in the right hand, as I do, you offer them your right arm with his left hand. You know, in other words, you, you let the left hand take your arm and you guide him across the intersection or the obstruction or whatever it may, may be that way. That, that's what we call sighted guide. Accepting help doesn't always equate, though, with accepting limits. He's been all over the U.S. and Canada, down to Ecuador even. He's been to Hawaii twice on his own, basking on Waikiki Beach. He's gone off solo to New York City to experience Broadway, making his way from the hotel to the theaters to attend musicals. Once he traveled out to Alberta for the annual Calgary Stampede, a famous sort of rodeo horse and cowboy festival, if you haven't heard about it. He had no intention of being a mere spectator. I had my harmonica with me at the time, and that turned out to be quite a little attraction. It was at one of the stampede breakfasts served by the cowboys out there. I was playing the harmonica, 
and I hardly had a chance to catch my breath. One of them offered me a ride on his horse, and the horse was not exactly thrilled about having somebody on his uh, back or in the saddle, let alone a complete stranger he didn't know from Adam, so to speak. So he was thrashing about a little bit, and uh, I calmed him down by singing some of my favorite old-fashioned Western-type songs, like uh, you would have heard uh, the Sons of the Pioneers and people like that singing. Uh, I sang uh, Blue Shadows on the Trail, uh, the Oregon Trail, and uh, a few other ones that... uh, I was always very fond of the group, uh, the Sons of the Pioneers, and I know a great many of her songs by heart. Once the horse settled down and was just clopping along to the rhythm of whatever I was singing, I was quite comfortable in the saddle. I sang several songs, and then when I got off, the horse gave a really uh, pleasant little whinny of contentment. Well, that evening, I had my radio on the coffee table, And I was listening to some of the details from the stampede grounds, and the phone rang. And this gentleman asked for the lady of the house, and I said, well, she's not home now. She's out at the stampede grounds. Uh, Could I take a message? And he said, well, no, can I speak to you for a minute? And I said, sure, what can I do for you? And he said, are you the guy by chance that sang to my horse while you were riding it today? And I said, I'm the one. And he said, I'd like to thank you very, very much for having done that, because he said in about the 10 or 12 years that he had owned that horse, he had never seen it grazing so peacefully. I'm so fond of that story. It kind of tickles me, you know. I've actually listened to it several times now, and I hope it made you smile, too. At this point, though, while I'm still thinking about harmonicas and happy horses, I want to be emphatic that not one thing we've talked about in this episode is either inconsequential or unproblematic. Uh, To show you what I mean, here's something I put to Daniel Kish, the founder of World Access for the Blind. You've used the metaphor of uh, crashing into a pole, and you have an interesting take on it. I said crashing into a pole is, is a drag, but not being allowed to crash into a pole is a disaster. Well, I mean, I do speak from experience. I have crashed into a number of poles. I will stand by that. The value of that depends a lot on personality. I mean, the, the, the general gist, the general point of that is that there simply needs to be opportunities to experience risk in order to learn to negotiate risk. There's just, there's just no question about that. Negotiating risk is a skill like any other skill on this planet. So if children are not allowed to experience risk, blindsided or otherwise, they simply will not develop the capacity to negotiate risk or navigate challenges in their lives. Yeah, so I just think we have to be mindful of who this person is, who it is we're working with, as we expose them to the opportunity to learn how to negotiate risk. I'm Marcus Smith. Special thanks to Daniel Kish and to Robert Just for being our guests. Today's episode was produced by Eric Schultzka with Daniel McDonald. Constant Wonder is a production of BYU Radio.